And all God's people said, West Bowles Community Church, He is risen. Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, today we join in the heavenly chorus, that heavenly chorus of Revelation chapter 5, singing along with the choir this morning, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Thank you, Father. Thank you for giving us your Son. Thank you, Father, for keeping your promise. Your promise to send the one who would make all things new. And it's in the name of that one, Jesus, our risen Messiah, that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Look at you all. It's good to see you again. It's been a while. I have missed you. It is, um, it's hard to believe that only four days ago, I stood on top of a mountain in Egypt called Sinai. It wasn't snowing there. <laughs> God says hi, by the way. <laughs> Took us six and a half hours to get up that thing through some of the most rugged, some of the most dry desert that I have ever seen. And I'm just, I'm overwhelmed today to be back with you on Easter to celebrate the one who has overcome all of life's deserts. Amen. And you hear about the one who has been raised, the one who has defeated death. That rolls off our lips so easily. He defeated death. You know, try that sometime. No, don't try that sometime. And it, doesn't it inspire you to serve? Doesn't it inspire you to want to give your whole life all your heart, all your soul, all your might to Him and loving Him and loving others. As I stood on or near Mount Sinai, thumbing through my Bible, in particular those books of Moses or Torah, which means law or perhaps better guide, those guidebooks for living, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that God gave to His people gave to His people that He deeply loved and cherished. And I thought as I was sitting there, I put my head in my hands and I thought, you know, what a bum rap those books often receive from Christians, including me. How many times have you heard or felt, well, that's the Old Testament and it's all about law and obedience and do's and don'ts and works and... You know that God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. He's an angry God. And the God of the New Testament is the only God that is one of compassion and grace and love and freedom. And I thought, how sad. How terribly, terribly sad when we fail to see God's tremendous love and grace and freedom throughout Scripture. How terribly sad when we forget that Abraham lived by faith, and Moses and David and Deborah and Ruth and Esther, how on earth can we reach the conclusion that God's deep and abiding love doesn't merit emphasis until the New Testament? How terribly sad. Because, my friends, it's been since the beginning that God has revealed His amazing love and His amazing grace for His people.
and has asked His people to live by faith. Even after Adam and Eve decided to do it their way rather than God's way, there's God immediately in that garden encouraging them with a promise to someday send the One who would make it all right again. And God's there in the garden doing of all things, making clothes for His children to wear. And throughout Genesis, God is there comforting, helping, forgiving, and loving His people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel, and many, many more. All of them experience the abundance of God's love and grace. As God passes in front of Moses in Exodus 34, God Himself proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And who can forget only a boy named David? Remember him? The boy who threw a stone and who spent years in the desert singing his prayers. Psalms, we call them. So many of which overflow with the joy and laughter and love of God. And really, for the love of God, and I mean that literally, for the love of God, for thousands of years before Jesus was born, God encouraged and helped, forgave and fed, defended, guided, protected, delivered, blessed, and just in general loved on His people, amen, over and over and over again. And sure, God disciplined them from time to time. Any expert, even a non-expert, will tell you discipline is an absolutely necessary part of love. But throughout the Old Testament and the New, God's great love of His people never, ever wavers. And today we celebrate that expression of that love and that grace. God is all there in love and in grace throughout Scripture. This morning on Resurrection Day, I'd like to look with you at one biblical picture in particular that God gives us to help us better understand and more fully appreciate His love for us. And it's the picture of marriage. Throughout Scripture, have you noticed, God often describes Himself as a faithful husband and His people as His bride. Perhaps no book in the Bible makes this any clearer than the book of Hosea. Remember Hosea? Hosea marries Gomer. There's an unfortunate name for a woman. Now, someone after the service is going to come up and say, Hi, I'm Gomer. So, uh, sorry. <laughs> Jose marries Gomer, a wife who is unfaithful to him. And God, with tears, how you can read Jose without tears streaming down your face in empathy for our great God is beyond me. With tears, God describes His relationship with His people as the same. God, the faithful husband, and Israel, His unfaithful wife. God's pain over His people's unfaithfulness is as real and as deep and as crushing as Jose's pain or as any husband or wife's pain whose spouse is unfaithful. God cries out throughout this amazing book, deeply wounded. He says in Hosea 4, there's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. 
His great heart is constantly broken over his broken relationship with his bride. And yet, God's love for his people is so deep, so true, so faithful. He can't let her go. Even though Israel's determined to turn from God, God sobs, How can I give you up? How can I turn you over? My heart is changed, he says, within me. All my compassion is aroused. Other prophets pick up on this picture of God as husband and his people as bride. Isaiah promises the people that as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And God himself says about Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert. And as I sat in that very desert last week, I thought about a message to share on Easter with you all, and I thought about the message of a marriage relationship between God and His people, that wonderful intimate picture God gives us in Scripture, complete with wedding vows. Have you ever noticed? God promised His people, here's God's wedding vow. I'll be faithful and loving. I will be your God, and I promise to never leave you, He says. And the people made a similar promise. They promised to be faithful to God. In fact, God gave them detailed wedding vows. Did you realize that? We have them. Do you know what the people's detailed wedding vows were? You find them of all places in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. See if you recognize the wedding vows of God's people. God, I promise to follow only You. I promise not to make or follow any idols. I promise, God, to honor Your name and how I speak. I promise to remember the Sabbath. I promise, God, to honor my father and mother. I promise not to murder or commit adultery. And God, I promise not to steal or to lie when it comes to my neighbor especially. And I promise, Father, not to be envious about what others have that I don't. You recognize those, I'm sure, as the Ten Commandments. Have you ever considered the Ten Commandments, let alone the complete Torah, the guide, as the wedding vows of God's people? God told His people how to be a faithful bride, how to love, honor, and obey God when He gave them Torah. The New Testament writers pick up on this picture as God, of God as husband and God's people as bride and develop it even more. Paul tells the church at Corinth, I promised you to one husband, Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. And then in Ephesians 5, Paul compares the relationship between Christ and the church to the mutual submission relationship between a husband and wife. John the Baptist calls Jesus, there he is, the bridegroom, he says. And when Jesus is questioned about fasting, 
Jesus even calls himself the bridegroom of his disciples. And the New Testament also includes its summary of our wedding vows to God. A summary of the Ten Commandments and all Torah, really. Jesus is asked, point blank, Teacher, what must we do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus Himself gives us our wedding vow to God. He says, We are to love God with all our hearts and all our souls and all our might and all our minds. And we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Love God and love others. That's our wedding vow. That's what we do in response to all of this if we're interested in being a faithful bride. And so today, we celebrate the resurrection, yes, of a risen Savior, but also a risen bridegroom, the risen bridegroom of all believers. For you see, one reason we celebrate today is that Jesus was and is the only one to ever completely keep our wedding vows to God. He was and is the only one to ever fully obey Torah and thus to fulfill it. The only one to perfectly keep the Ten Commandments. The only one to fully and perfectly and completely, even unto death, love God and love others. And because of this, Paul tells us that God exalted Jesus to the highest place. No grave could hold Him. Death was no match for Him. And out of the tomb, Jesus came, the risen, faithful bridegroom of His body, His church, His bride. You will not find Jesus' bones in a tomb. You will not find Jesus' bones in a box. You will not find them on a train or with a fox. You certainly won't find them eating green eggs and ham. It's not kosher. The only place you'll find Jesus' bones is in His living, resurrected body. Amen? The question I'd like you to leave with this morning, or I'd like to leave with you this morning, is so what now? What about right now in response to all of this? What's Jesus doing right now as our risen bridegroom? And what are we supposed to be up to right now as His bride? Now, to answer those questions, I'm going to need your help. I want to tell you a story, and I'll need your help to tell the story. It's the story of what a first century wedding in Galilee would have been like. As near as we can guess, we've misplaced the video footage so, of the first century, so this is as near as we can guess what a wedding would have been like in Jesus' day. In my opinion, Jesus draws from many things in his life, including the wedding ceremony. See if you can recognize some of the things from Jesus' teaching. But I'm going to need your help. So, I need two villages. I need a village of the groom. So from the center aisle this way, you guys are the village of the groom. We'll call him Reuben. Okay? And then you all are the village of the bride. We'll call her Rebecca. All right? Now I need a Reuben. I know someone your whole life you've been praying, one day I'd love to be a visual aid. This is your chance. So I need a Reuben. 18, 19, 20 years old. Oh, that shot him. That's a, Sorry. Someone. Who's engaged to be married? 
<laughs> All right, come on up here. <laughs> You're close to 20, okay. One of the wedding vows was don't lie. Were you listening? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, this is Reuben. Say hello to Reuben. Good. Okay, don't go. Stay right there, okay? Oh, yeah. Okay, now I need a Rebecca. No, it's got to be a girl. Okay, come on up. You were Peter in the boat from last year, weren't you? Yeah, we'll see if you ever come up again. I remember you. Your name's not Gomer, is it? No. Okay, this is Rebecca. Rebecca is from your village, okay? Okay, Rebecca, you sit tight, all right? Yeah, look, okay, good. Yeah, look at Reuben checking out Rebecca. This is just pretend, okay? Now, in Jesus' day, the whole village or community would participate in choosing a bride. Can you figure? And in choosing a groom, for that matter. So one day, Reuben, let's say you come home from working in the fields. Your insula, your community, your village is big into farming. And you come home from the fields and you go to your family and you say, you know what, I think I'm ready to be married. Okay, so go ahead, try that out. I think I'm ready to be married. Okay. Now, uh, you know, maybe it would be greeted the same way it might be greeted today. You know, some of your brothers and sisters, your closest friends go, ah, Reuben thinks he's ready to be married. (laughs) But eventually, after the kidding is done, what your job is as Reuben's community, no one would think of making such a decision on their own, you know, after going out to a couple of movies or, you know, no one would think doing it on their own. Of course you would involve your family and community. What kind of knucklehead culture would have that decision made on their own? I can't imagine. Can you? So here's Reuben. Now the whole community is in on this decision. And you all decide not only whether he's ready to be married, but part of your discussion is who's right for Reuben? Because you know Reuben better than anyone. Because you've watched him grow up. And so you all now start having discussion on who's the best for Reuben. Go ahead. Okay, 815 did much better than you guys. Come on, go ahead. Who's good for Reuben? I hear Rebecca. See, and what you all start doing is you all start talking about people that you know very well, from another village perhaps. Say, hey, you know, that family of Rebecca's, they grow grapes. That'd be great to add to our farm. They know farming. That's a real family. Rebecca would be an excellent match for Reuben. Now, you'd get input, too. And when you hear the name Rebecca, you'd light up. Because you've... Yeah, it's good. <laughs> Don't quit your day job, but that was good. <laughs> and so, because he's noticed Rebecca in the, you know, in the fall, treading those grapes. So he's thinking, yeah, Rebecca. So you say, yeah, I think Rebecca would be awesome. So there's consensus that Rebecca is um, chosen. So, well, now it's up to Rebecca and her family. So Reuben would come with her father. I used a father first service, but he didn't get to do anything. So I felt bad. So your father is with you. I'll be your father. And so we go. I thought it better was looking that. So we go. We go to uh, Rebecca's village. We knock on the door, right? 
And then Rebecca's father, he comes up, he answers the door. And here, you know, here sits Reuben. And maybe, Rebecca, you're peeking out from behind Dad. Yeah. Well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm the dad. You're Reuben. And you're peeking out. Say, Shalom. How are you? Um, listen, well, we were talking in our community, and we're wondering if uh, Reuben would be an acceptable bridegroom for Rebecca. Now, that's right. He's looking at exactly the right place. He would start talking with all of you, right in front of Reuben. And you'd start, you know, well, I don't, is Rebecca, you know, and, you know, not just, you know, um, critiquing Reuben, but you know Rebecca. She has grown up in your community. Who knows Rebecca better? We're not going to let two kids decide on their own whether, okay, I beat that. And so you all decide, what do you think about Reuben and Rebecca being married? Go ahead. What do you think? Yeah. And, and you're sweating it out. Cause you're... I know, I am sweating it And Rebecca, you know, she's like... And then, Rebecca, you get input. You know, at, at some point, someone will say, what do you think about Reuben? He's pretty good-looking. He's pretty good-looking. Okay. <laughs> That's a different sermon. Um, he's a man of God, right? Okay, good. And so you all decide, yeah, Reuben and Rebecca would be a good match. And now the two fathers, we would agree on the price for the bride. Because when Rebecca marries Reuben, he goes to his father's house, which has many rooms, and lives with Reuben and his family. You lose the bride. You lose Rebecca, at least living among you every day. And that's a big loss. So there has to be a sacrifice in order for Reuben to win the bride. And so we agreed on, we agree on the, yeah, <laughs> at least four herds of camels. <laughs> so whatever it is, there's an agreement. There's a covenant made in blood. We agree. And now, what's understood in the culture and what Reuben might even say, depending on uh, the history that you studied, he would say to all of you, including Rebecca, I go now back to my father's house. In my father's house are many rooms. And I go to prepare a place for you, for Rebecca. So you go over there and start preparing a room for Rebecca in your father's house. <laughs> Meanwhile, Rebecca gets ready. <laughs> Rebecca is preparing too. She's preparing. Okay, just a minute. <laughs> okay. All right, Reuben. Here's what we could just start hammering away, hammering away on this room that you're building for Rebecca. Okay? So just let me hear it. Good. Okay, now, you really want to get this room done. Because the sooner you get the room done the sooner you get the bride in the room. So you're, yeah, much better. That's good, okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, Rebecca and community, you are preparing the bride. You don't know exactly when the groom is going to be coming, so you make sure there are oil in your lamps. You make sure there's anything that you'd want to cover with dad or family or community on how to be 
the best possible bride for Reuben. <laughs> and Reuben continues to hammer away. Now, when Reuben thinks the room is ready, okay, you go to your father, that's me, that, don't go yet, let me go over here. And you come, is it now, is it time? I have prepared a place for Rebecca. I'd like her to come over with our house. Can she come? This was a very good ad lib, wasn't it? That was good. Now, I might go to the room and say, well, come here, son. You missed a spot. This is Rebecca. This is your bride. It needs to be perfect. So please, keep, yes, keep working. So Reuben starts hammering away. Because it was well known in that culture, and it was an idiom that was well used, that only the father knows the day and the time of the son's return for his bride. You're working away, Reuben. Okay. Finally, the father comes and says, Now! Now it's time. And Reuben, you can't wait. You run to Rebecca's village. You fly to Rebecca's village. And as Reuben comes and gets near to the village, a shofar is brought out, and the trumpet blows. The trumpet blows to announce the coming of the groom. And when you hear the trumpet blow, any bride <laughs> perks up her ears because they don't know whose groom it is. And to the sound of the trumpet, the bridegroom comes and claims his bride. Go ahead. And you take your bride back to your father's house, to the room that you have prepared. <laughs> and in fact, they're not really dating or anything, are they? Okay. And in fact, the whole village comes with. The whole village comes with. The marriage is made complete. And then there is a wedding feast for seven days between villages. A huge wedding feast in honor of the bridegroom and his bride. Put your hands together for Reuben and Rebecca. Thank you so much. You guys can have a seat. Do you hear some of Jesus' teaching rippling in the background about going to prepare rooms and only the Father knows the day and you remember the ten virgins, five had oil in their lamp, five didn't? Jesus constantly used well-known pictures from his life and times. Why? So his people would understand. God is beautiful in that way. So I asked you, so what now? If the metaphor holds true, and I think biblically it does, we'll see even more so in a minute. What's Jesus doing now as the risen bridegroom? What's He doing? He's preparing a place for us in His Father's house. And when God says, now, Jesus is going to return again to the sound of a trumpet, you look it up, to claim us as His bride, and we'll be with God forever. 
And what should we be doing now in light of our resurrected bridegroom? We should be preparing too. We should be faithful and true. We should keep our wedding vows to love, honor, and obey. We should be loving God with all our hearts, our souls, and our might. Every corner of every portion of our lives and being. And we should be loving our neighbors as ourselves. Passionate about our obedience and faithfulness to God. Not something we have to do. Something we get to do as the bride of Christ. You know, every so often, someone will say to me something like, all this talk, Todd, about obedience and being faithful, all this talk of even the Ten Commandments for crying out loud, I thought, I thought that was Old Testament stuff. What about grace? My response is always something like this. Can you imagine... I'll ask you, can you imagine a wedding where after the ceremony, the bride or the groom asks, What? Now I have to be faithful to my spouse? My friends, it is indeed by grace that we are saved. Amen? And it's indeed by amazing grace that our bridegroom is offered to us in marriage. And when we accept His offer, when we say, I do, to Jesus, first thing that happens is we all marry way above our heads. Right? And two, it's by grace that we get to be obedient, that we get to be a faithful bride. In Paul's words, grace doesn't mean we can sin all the more. It doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. No, Paul emphatically says, Grace means we have the honor, the privilege, the delight, the beautiful wedding dance of faithful obedience to God, to our bridegroom, Jesus, the risen Messiah, who even now prepares a place for us where we will one day be together with God forever. The righteous will live by faith, Paul says, not simply think or talk or do theology about faith. Live by faith, Paul says. So I invite you, my dear friends and brothers and sisters, this Easter, this Resurrection Day, to commit your lives if you haven't before or to recommit if you already have your lives to faithful love and obedience in response to what He's done, our risen Lord and Savior, to our risen Bridegroom, as together in the community and fellowship of believers we prepare for His return by keeping our wedding vows of obediently and passionately loving God and loving others. And when He comes, may it be said and may He find His bride, His church, faithful. And when he comes again and finds his faithful bride and takes her home, what's the first thing we'll do? Do you remember? Listen to the words of John in his letter called Revelation. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, 
like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We'll sit down to a wedding feast just like Reuben and Rebecca. And oh, what a day of rejoicing that will be when Jesus calls our name if we have died before He comes again. And out of the graves we come. If we're living, we'll see Him come that way too. And as we're knocking the dirt out of our ears, if we come out of graves, we rise to the beautiful set table of a wedding feast as we say, hello, and I love you to our beautiful, wonderful, amazing bridegroom of Jesus Christ. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and be gracious to you. May the Lord cause His face to smile on you and give you His peace, His shalom. In the name of Jesus the Messiah, the risen Savior, go in peace. Amen.